0: is no exception because today we're wrapping up this series and we're coming after the Christmas spirit, okay? The Christmas spirit is in our crosshairs today and it's going down. <laughs> Merry Christmas everyone. Bah humbug, okay? But what I mean by the Christmas spirit is this kind of this idea that at Christmas time there can be a fake or a surfacey or artificial or a forced kind of happiness. You know what I mean? Where it's just like everyone's smiling and everyone's happy and they're like, hey, Merry Christmas. And if you're a certain kind of, you know, personality, you just want to punch them in the face, right? But, you know, I'll, I'll, we'll pray for you later. But just in general, like there's just a sense of like, it's just kind of over the top. It's like a force. it's like, it's like Christmas itself is telling you how you should feel. You know I mean? We even, because it, it's, after all, it is the hap- happiest season of all. It is the most wonderful time of the year. And you know what the kids are doing? they're jingle belling. And you know what everyone else is telling you? To be of good cheer. That's right. Because it's the most wonderful time of the year. And you're like, but what if I don't want to be? And what if I don't feel that way? There's like this pressure about how you should feel and everything about Christmas kind of pushes us into this. I mean, like the quintessential picture are just Christmas movies. They're not good Christmas movies. You know what I'm talking about. There's some of you that just like, as soon as a certain channel that shall not be named, starts showing Christmas movies, you're just like, yes. <laughs> I need all of them. I happen to be married to this kind of person, okay? <laughs> and it's just like, and, and like, come on, come on. Like, It's just, they're meant to be sappy. They're meant to remind you of the best case scenarios of life, where everything's perfect. It's picture-perfect families, and there's romance, and there's love, and there's holiday traditions, and it's family, and it's and it, I mean, there's only like three plots of every one of those Christmas movies ever made, you know? The girl who leaves the small town and she gets a job in a, you know, in the big city and she's a big shot CEO, but she goes home for Christmas and remembers what it's all about and falls in love with the guy that sells Christmas trees. And everyone's like, yes, I love it. And you just like, my heartstrings are being tugged on right now. Ah! They're meant to make us feel a certain way. Our Christmas songs make us feel a certain way and happiness. Like even the food that we eat for like a month straight, it's like, it's sugar, okay? It tastes great. It's over the top. It's feasting. We eat the roast beast. The Grinch slices it for us. All of these things that are just like endorphins, dopamine, be happy, feel wonderful, it's great. And it sets this really high bar for the expectation of how we should feel this year. But then... For some of us, maybe for some of you, and maybe for everyone at some point in life, that's the expectation, but your reality doesn't match that, and everybody's happy all around you, and Christmas time is wonderful, and it's great, and it's the Christmas spirit, and you're like, but that's not my world right now. Maybe it's a Christmas where because of just the state of the economy and inflation and all that stuff, where it's like things are tight, and I can't provide the kind of Christmas that I want to, and I got to tell my kids that we don't have as much this year as we normally would. Maybe it's, it's at Christmas time, you're, just, you're always reminded of who isn't here to celebrate Christmas with you anymore, or it's your first year celebrating Christmas without someone that you love. Maybe when you see the picture-perfect families on, on all those movies, and, and everyone's feeling great, to them, it's just a reminder of you that that will never be your reality, because your marriage is falling apart, or your kids aren't talking to you, or, man, you, you want that, but for whatever reason, it just hasn't been in the cards, and, and it hasn't happened for you. Or maybe it's Christmas and you're just like, I'm just, I don't feel anything. I'm just numb. And so what do we do with that when everyone's like, yeah, be happy, and it's Christmas, and it's cheerful, and it's joyful, and then you add another layer to it in a space like this where, you know, it, church, and we, we celebrate the birth of Jesus, and, and even not just in church, but just kind of culturally, like there's, there's these kind of religious overtones that get mixed in with Christmas, and there we have nativity scenes that we set up, and we sing songs about a Savior being born, and now all of a sudden, the message of Jesus is getting mixed in with the whole Christmas spirit, and it's about happiness and joy, and you're like, but I don't feel that way. So maybe this Jesus thing isn't for me. Maybe Christianity doesn't work for me. Maybe it's not true. Maybe it works for somebody else but not for me because if, if this is how I'm supposed to feel, I'm supposed to be happy and joyful all the time, that's not me, so this doesn't work. Really good news. To the rescue comes the original message of Christmas because that was not it at all. See, the, the, the original message of Christmas, Christmas does not originate from a place of happiness and cheer or pain-free, struggle-free existence. Quite the opposite, actually. The announcement of a coming Savior, of a child that would be born, was spoken into a world of darkness and despair and pain and brokenness. So we're going to jump in our time machine this morning, and we're going to travel back about 700-ish years before the birth of Jesus. We're going to look at some words spoken by uh, the prophet Isaiah. And so it's, it's found in what we would call the Old Testament, um, but to the people of Jesus day and to the people of the time, whenever uh, these things were happening, it wasn't the old anything. It was just the Hebrew scriptures. It was the Jewish Bible. God had chosen the nation of Israel to say like, hey, I'm going to do something for the whole world through you. You're my chosen people. I'm going to bless the world. Um, and they're like, okay, that's great. We're going to follow you. And they do that for about five seconds. Um, but, and God would then raise up these prophets to speak to his people, to like call them back to, to him. And Isaiah is one of these prophets. And in the book of Isaiah, again, about 700 years before the birth of Jesus, we find all these prophecies about th- this coming one, this coming Messiah, who he would be, what he would do. In fact, it's where we get some of the most famous of like the Christmas prophecies, that the verses that we read, the songs are full of these, these ideas and these themes. It's in these early chapters of Isaiah, Isaiah 6 we, is where we find, and this will be assigned to you. The virgin shall conceive and give birth to a son, and you'll call him Emmanuel. It's a couple chapters later in Isaiah 9 that we that we read the, the, the promise of, uh, for unto us a child is born, a son is given. The government will be upon his shoulders, and he'll be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. We, we read these beautiful promises, but here's the thing. If you, if you turn, like, in the Bible, if you go to Isaiah, you're not gonna find those tucked under, like, a little subcategory that says Christmas verses, right? Where it's not just like, oh, yay, this is where the happy... Baby is born, and we're all excited, and all, don't they just look so perfect? there in the little manger scene, and they're all smiling, and it's like, no, that's not where you find them. You find these promises, and you find these verses tucked in people who are living, in between people who are living in a very real life, in very real circumstances, and quite honestly, everything is falling apart around them. And so we're going to do a little history lesson quickly this morning to set us up. Some of you are going to love that. Some of you are going to hate that. But you just got to come to terms with this. If you're going to be a part of, uh, of this church and, and come here, um, you're going to get involuntary, uh, unsigned up for history lessons. Because like that's just how I roll. I, I love history, okay? Uh, and one of the coolest things about the Christian faith is that, like, it intersects with history in so many, so many places. So we're going way back. Kind of like, how did we get to the point where we're at in, uh, in Isaiah that we're going to look at? So God had called the nation of Israel. He rescued them out of slavery. He says, I'm your God. You're my people. You didn't earn this, but I love you, and I'm calling you. I'm going to do something for the whole world through you. Uh, and they turn their backs on God, and they chase after foreign gods, and they do all kinds of evil and wicked things, and they have some really, really terrible leaders. Eventually, that b- brings them to a point where the nation is divided into two. And you have what's known as the, the, the Northern Kingdom, which is, retains the, uh, the, the name Israel, the Northern Kingdom of Israel. It had a capital city where the, their temple was in the city of Samaria. And then you have the Southern Kingdom, which takes on the name Judah. Because of all the tribes, the 12 tribes of Israel, only one of them was a part of that Southern Kingdom. Anyone want, want to guess what it is? It was Judah. Yeah, they, they just kept the name. And Judah, the capital and the temple, is in the city of Jerusalem. And so these two kingdoms should be one nation, should be God's people, should be united, they're split, they're divided, um, and things go downhill for them really, really quickly. It goes downhill a lot faster for the northern kingdom, um, but the southern kingdom gets there eventually as well. They both end up in exile, and it's, it's a really, really sad story. But the, the, the prophets were raised up to speak to these people, mostly kind of in exile in these really, really rough times, and Isaiah was a prophet to the southern kingdom of Judah speaking to the people of Judah and the kings of Judah, and specifically what we're going to look at today, the king of Judah is Ahaz. And so that's going on kind of among God's people, but there's a whole other world out there as well. I, like, I don't know at exactly at what point in my life this this, like, this thought crossed my mind, like kind of growing up and read the Bible. It's like, this is just like the whole world is going on in here. It's like, no, this is just one little group of people. There's a whole world around them. It's a whole new world. Okay, like this. this is like, I'm like, wow, like, so there's people like there's other things going on in world history. But, you know, scripture is the story of God's people throughout history. And one of the nations around the people of Israel at the time of Isaiah was Assyria. And they were the world's superpower at the time. They were a massive nation that were, was, was gobbling up territory and peoples by just, just conquer the people, war, battle, bloodshed. Uh, man, the things that the Assyrian Empire did as, as modern people, we would just be so appalled at their lack of regard for just human life. And so they're the big bad guys on the block, and, and, and some nations, you know, seeing that that would be their fate, rather than being completely wiped out by the Assyrians, they would kind of form an alliance, and they would become these like vassal states of the Assyrian empire, and they would have to pay tribute to the Assyrians, basically, we're going to pay you money so you don't come and kill us all. The northern kingdom of Israel was one of these states, and so was another kingdom at the time by the name of Syria, not Assyria, but Syria. And the kings of these two nations, the king of Syria, Rezin, and the king of Israel, his name was Pekah, they form an alliance together. They think, we're going to get together and we're going to fight against the Assyrians. We're going to, we're going to take them down. But they know that they're just two nations and they're kind of small and, and Assyria is really, really big. So, you know, I would imagine this is how the conversation went. You know, these two guys are talking and the king of Israel's is like, hey, you know, basically, the, Judah, we're the basically one. Like, we split a long time ago, but we're family. We're like brothers. We're like allies. Let's go get them to be on our side. And so the king of of Israel, the king of Syria, they go to the king of Judah, Ahaz, and they're like, hey, come be on our team. We're going to fight against the Assyrians. And King Ahaz of Judah is like, not going to do that. That just doesn't seem like a good idea. Uh, And so Israel and Syria decide, if you're not going to willingly be our friend, we will go to war against you and make you be our friend. Okay, and we are going to be allies whether you like it or not. And so just picture this. You have Israel, the northern kingdom of Israel, the southern kingdom of Judah, who are supposed to be one people. Like, they are blood relatives. They are supposed to be God's people basically doing civil war against each other. And at that point in time, God tells Isaiah, hey, go, go, go speak to King Ahaz and give him this message. And so God speaks through Isaiah, tells King Ahaz, don't worry about the, the, um, the northern kingdom of Israel and Syria. The, like, don't be afraid of them. I got you. Just trust me. They're not going to defeat you. It's going to be fine. And He says, in fact, I'm going to use the, the Assyrian empire to bring my judgment upon Israel. The Assyrians are going to wipe them out. And so Ahaz is like, okay, that's great. You know? That's great. And then he has a brilliant idea. He's like, I know what I'll do. I'll form an alliance with the Assyrians. It'll be great. It was a terrible idea. If you you want to read about this, it's it's in Isaiah 7 and 8, 2 Kings 16 um, as well. So, and like bad moves. All this is going on. There's geopolitical alliances being made. There's war about to happen. There's an empire about to sweep through. It's really, really bad. And so finally, God speaks through Isaiah to kind of give this pronouncement of, all right, guys, this is what's going to happen. That the Assyrian army and the king of Assyria are going to come in and destroy Israel. And he uses this imagery of, he calls the Assyrian army the Euphrates River, right? This big, massive river. Um, there's this imagery that develops in the early chapters of Genesis where in, in Scripture, the idea of water to the ancient people carried the idea of death and destruction and chaos. And so the picture is like Assyria is going to come rushing in like this, this agent of destruction and chaos. It's like the Euphrates swelling up and flooding and bursting over the banks and the floodwaters are going to wipe out the northern kingdom. And then he says to, um, to Judah, and the floodwaters are going to come swirling around you as well, and the floodwaters will come up to your neck. In other words, Israel's going to be destroyed. Judah, you're going to survive, but it's not going to be good. It's going to be really, really bad. And so all of this is going on, and this is like God saying through Isaiah, guys, this is what's in your very near future because of of your decisions. It's not going to be good. Geopolitical turmoil, war, violence, death, destruction, enemies all around you. Judah, who should have been your closest ally, has turned its back on you. They're your enemy now. Everything is falling apart. And then Isaiah writes this. This is kind of his summation of what it's going to be like. Distressed and hungry, they will roam through the land. When they're famished, they'll become enraged, and looking upward, they will curse their king and their god. They'll look toward the earth and see only distress and darkness and fearful gloom, and they'll be thrust into utter darkness. So say, hey, this is your future. This is what life is going to look like for you because of your decisions, and you, know, you keep chasing after these foreign gods. You're trying to make an alliance with the Assyrians who are just awful. Like It is death and destruction and violence and bloodshed and famine and gloom. And even though this is your own doing, you're going to blame God and be like, I can't believe you did this to me. It's going to get really, really bad. But then you turn the page or just keep reading down. The very next thing you read, chapter eight ends there and chapter nine begins. And chapter nine, verse one, Isaiah says, nevertheless, gloom, destruction, death, darkness, chaos, pain. But nevertheless, there will be no more gloom for those who are in distress. At which point I would imagine Isaiah's original audience is like, we're confused, because I thought you just said basically, we're all going to die, and now you're saying it's going to be just fine. And he's like, yeah, that, that's basically what I'm saying. Because, yeah, like things are really, really bad, and it's going to get really, really bad, but that's not where your story ends, because you, as he speaks to the people of Judah, you are in a covenant relationship with God. The covenant's different than a contract. In our current world, we do contracts. and a contract says when one person, when one party breaks the terms of the contract, that contract is now null and void. But a covenant says even when one person breaks the terms of this agreement, it still holds intact. And so God's like, hey, you're my people, and you may have turned your back on me. And there's consequences for that. Like, there are consequences that flow out of our actions. I'm not turning my back on you because I love you, and I'm still with you, and I still have plans for you. I'm still faithful. You're still my people. And so nevertheless, there will be no more gloom. What you're going through right now is not the end and then he continues and says, In the past, he, talking about God, humbled the land of Zebulun, the land of Naphtali. But in the future he will honor Galilee of the nations by the way of the sea beyond the Jordan. And so he's doing a couple of things that are interesting here. Number one, he's doing this like weird little time hop thing. Because Isaiah is talking about this uh, destruction that was coming from the Assyrians, the Assyrian army coming in, but he's talking about something that hasn't happened yet, as if it's already happened. That in the past, that's what he's talking about, he says in the past he humbled the land of Zebulun and Naphtali." It was this kind of prophetic way of talking, of saying, like, this hasn't happened yet, but I'm going to talk like it's already happened because it's going to happen. It's done. Like, you can, you can take it to the bank. But then he's also doing a little bit of geography because he, he mentions Zebulun and Naphtali, which were two of the tribal divisions of the nation of Israel. So like we have states in our country that kind of divide the country into different areas. Israel was divided into these tribal divisions so for the original 12 tribes. And these two that he lists, these, based on where they were located, were the first two areas to fall to the Assyrians. Like when the Assyrians came in to, to take over the nations, these two areas took the brunt of that destruction. They got it the worst. They were completely devastated and decimated. It was horrible for them. But these same areas, when you fast forward to the time of Jesus, they're known by a different name. It's the region of Galilee, the area where Jesus was from, the area where he was born, the area where he did most of his ministry. And so Isaiah is, to his immediate uh, context, his immediate audience is referring to something that would be uh, well known to them that was about to happen, that was on their doorstep. But at the same time, he's pointing to something that would happen in the future that this land is going to be devastated. But that won't be what it's known for. In fact, it will ultimately be known for something amazing. It will be honored. He continues carrying this theme, kind of this juxtaposition of things are bad and yet they're good and it's going to be awful and yet it's not the end. And so he continues and says, the people walking in darkness have seen a great light. On those living in the land of deep darkness, a light has dawned. And so chapter 8 ends with him, remember, gloom and despair and darkness. The people are in darkness again, yet nevertheless, a light is coming, and a light has dawned, but the darkness doesn't last forever. He says, you have enlarged the nation, speaking about God, and the nation being Israel. You've enlarged the nation. You've increased their joy, and they rejoice before you as people rejoice at the harvest, as warriors rejoice when dividing the plunder. So again, chapter 8, it ends with gloom and despair and mourning and they're angry at God and they're shaking their fist and everything's falling apart. And then he says, but yet your mourning will turn to joy. Rejoicing will come out of this. And he paints these kind of pictures that would have made so much sense for them and maybe not so much for us, but the idea of rejoicing at a harvest. when The harvest came in and it was a good harvest. You celebrated and you partied because that meant you were going to survive you know, for us, we just run to the grocery store. Like, I need something to eat. I go to the store. But for them, they were dependent on it. Hey, we got to have a good harvest. If we don't have a good harvest, we will not make it. We will not die. And so when, when you had a harvest, it was a party. It was a celebration. The same thing when you go to war, you go to battle. It's like, this might be, we might be wiped out. This may be the end of our people. And so when, when there's this, this victory that happened, there's a great celebrating. There's a great rejoicing because we've survived. We'll go on. And, and Isaiah's like, hey, you guys, it's really, really bad right now your mourning is going to be turned into rejoicing, and it's going to be like rejoicing at the harvest, rejoicing at the victory. And and the people he's talking to, they've got to be thinking, wait, this doesn't make any sense. Because again, he's talking to Judah, which is a teeny, teeny, tiny little, little nation. And Assyria is the world superpower. And it's like, how is this going to be possible? There's no way. We don't stand a chance. And so Isaiah is going to begin to remind them of something in their past. Because this was a common theme for Israel. They were, they were always outnumbered. They were always the little guy. They were all, like, things always seemed like they were falling apart, and yet they had God. And so he calls back to something in their past and says, for as in the day of Midian's defeat, you, talking about God again, you have shattered the yoke that burdens them, God's people, the bar across their shoulders, the rod of their oppressor. So early in Israel's history... During the time of the judges, they had this enemy, the Midianites, uh, that that were oppressing them, that that were going to war against them. And God raises up this leader by the name of Gideon. He's like, Gideon, I want you to kind of get together this little army. And, And Gideon gets an army, and God's like, that's too many people. And so some go away. He's like, that's still too many people. That's still too many people. Okay, finally, he's got this teeny tiny little army going against this massive nation. And God says, I can work with that. And God defeats the, the Midianites, and it's this picture of saying, hey, your strength is not in how big your army is and your resources. Your strength is knowing that I am your God and I am on your side. And so Isaiah points back to that, and he's like, hey, listen, like, it's going to be like that. This isn't new to us. God's always been fighting for us. If we will just turn back, if we will just be faithful. He continues kind of with this battle motif and, and says, every warrior's boot used in battle and every garment rolled in blood will be destined for burning, will be fuel for the fire. This was one of the things they did to to celebrate a victory. They would take uh, like the the battle clothes and they would burn them as basically an offering to God to say, "Hey, you've brought us this victory. It's a celebration," and so it had this immediate kind of victorious celebration thing. But it also has has this this future um, end kind of end of days eschatological reality that that one day all of the weapons of warfare and all of our battle clothes will be burnt. There'll be no need to have them anymore. There'll be no more violence. There'll be no more war. There'll be no more killing. Like, we can just we can burn all that stuff. It's done. And so there's this, this weird tension, this going back and forth in this passage because it starts with a picture of, of gloom and despair and destruction and pain and suffering and hunger and famine and darkness. And yet at the same time, he's like, but a light's coming and rejoicing is coming, and celebration is coming, and, and, and you can, like, we can celebrate these massive victories. And so Isaiah's audience, who's like, who are, who are staring down the reality of like, their imminent destruction by the Assyrians, They're like, Isaiah, how can you possibly say this to us? That there'll be a celebration, that there'll be victory, that there'll be rejoicing, that a light has come. Don't you see what we're going through? Don't you know what's about to happen? How, like, how is all of this going to come about? It's within that context, that kind of turmoil, that kind of uncertainty that we get what we call this famous Christmas promise. Because after all of that, Isaiah says this, for us, for to us, a child is born and to us, a son is given. Here's how all that's going to happen. There's going to be that victory and there's going to be rejoicing because a child is going to be born. At which point I, I would imagine his original audience, I mean, this is what I would be thinking, like... That's it? Like, really? Like, it's a a baby's born? It's a big deal. Babies are born every day. How is that going to help us? Don't you know we're about to die? How does a baby being born help anything? He continues because it says some really extraordinary things because this isn't any ordinary child. This child will have a government upon his shoulders, because remember, this is within a discussion in an immediate context. We're talking about world superpowers and armies and kingdoms and nations. And he's like, oh, this child's going to have a kingdom of his own. And he will be called Wonderful Counselor. That, that he'll have a source of wisdom that if you, if you will come to him and get wisdom from him, he will give you a way to live and a way of life that leads to human flourishing. He'll be called Mighty God, that he's more than just human. something different about him that he'll be called everlasting father. That is that he is the very source of life. Life itself flows out of him and he can give life to whomever he pleases. And will be called prince of peace. We've talked about this before, but it always is worth mentioning that the Hebrew word, the idea here for peace is shalom. To us, peace just means like an absence of conflict, but the idea of shalom isn't about the absence of something, it's about the presence of something. It's the presence of wholeness, of completeness, of healing, of well-being, that that he's gonna come and bring wholeness and completeness to people as individuals, but to also to to society as a whole. That one, that this child is gonna be this extraordinary person. And of the greatness of his government and his peace, there will be no end. To his rule, to his kingdom, to the wholeness that he brings, it will never end. And he'll reign on David's throne and over his kingdom, establishing and upholding it with justice and righteousness from that time on and forever. For to us, a child is born, a son is given. See, this is is the promise of Christmas. This is the thing that we celebrate. This is this verse that we hold on to. It's like, yes, he's going to be these things. But we find that promise. Not in the midst of some nice, neat, tidy little Christmas package where everything's perfect and everything's nice and wonderful and, and it, it not, not in like just a perfect little picture of what life looks like wrapped in, in ribbon. But we find this promise made in the midst of pain and suffering and chaos and destruction and a people who had no idea what their tomorrow would look like. In the midst of that, God says, nevertheless. This is one of the things that I feel like there's this paradox, at least for me personally, that I love about the Christian faith and I kind of also hate it at the same time. Because there's this reality that what Jesus promises and what he invites us into, it's not a pain-free life. It's not saying, hey, if you follow me, if you be a Christian, everything's going to be wonderful and everything's going great, to be great for you all the time. You'll be healthy and you'll be wealthy and things will just be awesome. And then we bump up against pain and suffering. It's like, why is it like this? And so that's the part that I don't like, but the part that I love is that, 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 that this is like the Jesus way, and this thing that we believe isn't something that glosses over the reality of our everyday lives. He doesn't ask us to just like close our eyes and be like, no, everything's fine. I can't see it. I can't hear it. La, 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 la. Everything's fine. Everything's wonderful. He's like, no, 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 no. Embrace it. Live in it. Don't like, like, ex- like you, you should feel like it's okay to feel the pain of reality, but to know that that's not all that there is. That this idea of suffering is not. It's not strange to the Christian faith. It's not like a a weird outside kind of thing. It's actually at the very heart of Christianity. It's at the heart of the message of Jesus. Because we have the promise of a child made in the midst of suffering that this promise is made to a people who are like, they, it is over for them. They're gonna die. Everybody's turned against them. They are all on their own. It's pain, it's suffering. Like, the, the, the best picture I have is like, if you're a Lord of the Rings person, if you're not, what's wrong with you? But if you are, like in the, the second movie, like in the two towers, right, there's this, there's this scene where they're at Helm's Deep and it looks like it's over and like Theoden the king, they've basically given up and he's just like, what can men do against get so much death and hate, right? And like, they, they cut to the, the scene of like, the, the women and the children are in the caves just crying because the mass orc army is about to come in and kill them all like this is this is the reality of the, the people of israel and judah as these words are spoken or it's just like like it is over for us it's a promise that's made in the midst of suffering and that child that was promised would be born into a world of suffering a world that as modern people we can't even begin to uh, like to try to get our heads around like what was it like to live then that he would live a life of suffering, that Isaiah later goes on to talk about the the life that this child would live, and he calls him a man of sorrow, as one who was acquainted with suffering, that he was well familiar with it. The child was born into a world of suffering, but the promise that was made would ultimately be fulfilled by the means of suffering, that what was promised, this kingdom that would never end, and the light coming, and, and the enemies being destroyed that promise would be fulfilled by the child suffering. That Jesus faced the most excruciating pain that we can possibly imagine as he hung naked and bleeding and beaten and spit on, on a cross to fulfill the promise. Promise made in the midst of suffering, a child born into a world of suffering, fulfilled by the means of suffering. And, and here's why that's all such good news, because that means for you and me, if you are a follower of Jesus, if you're considering Christianity, if you're wondering, is there anything to possibly give you hope? It means there's a hope that we can have in spite of suffering. Because the promise that was given, the hope that was given was never one that had the, you know, the qualification attached to it that says this hope only applies if things are great for you. It was a promise that had the the disclaimer that says, no, this hope applies across the board, maybe especially when things aren't good for you. See, this is the, the real Christmas spirit. It's not necessarily a spirit that says, hey, just be of good cheer, be happy, Merry Christmas, just smile, smile through the pain, right? That's not it. It's not one that tries to cover up our pain with manufactured happiness or to bury it beneath whatever traditions and decorations and gifts, not that there's anything wrong with those things. But the real Christmas spirit is is one that's big enough, it's strong enough, it's secure enough to stare reality in the face. Whether that be my own personal reality of what's going on in my life, Or just the reality of what the world is like. It's able to stare reality in the face and say, you know what? Things are not great. I find myself in a world of suffering. My life is defined by suffering. Things are not as they should be. But nevertheless, nevertheless, there's no more gloom for those who are in distress. Nevertheless, there's a light for those who are living in darkness. Nevertheless, a child has been born. And he's my wonderful counselor. He's my everlasting father. He's my Prince of Peace, and He is my mighty God. He is God in the flesh. He is Emmanuel, God with us. He has come. And when He came, He came to set us free from sin and death and the pain and the suffering that comes with that. Through His death on the cross and His resurrection, He has set us free from that. And so there's this hope that we have at Christmas time that we look back on that. But we also look forward because we say he's God with us. He has come and he is going to come again. That he'll return and he'll complete this process. And when he does, every ounce of evil will be wiped off the face of the earth. Every tear will be wiped away. Every bit of suffering will be gone. It will be no more. It will be as if it never even happened. That is the hope of Christmas. That is what it's about. It brings us into this place. It's something that we experience in the present, in our present pain and suffering, but it points us to a greater reality that is coming, where it says, this may be my reality, and I don't need to shy away from it. It's okay to feel all the feels and, and to embrace that, and be like, this is, this is hard and this is difficult, but nevertheless. Let's pray. God, thank you that you are, you're the God of nevertheless. You are the God that did not shy away from suffering, but you stepped into it. You stepped into our mess because you are Emmanuel, God, with us. You put on human flesh. You walked among us. You showed us what it looks like to to love and and to live and how to serve God and how to love others. God, you gave yourself on a cross. You embraced the suffering that was brought on by, by our sin, by our evil, by our wickedness. You brought that onto yourself so that we can be forgiven, so that we can be healed, so that we can have hope. So, man, I just pray whatever we're going through. For those of us who are in the room watching online that are going through some very, very difficult circumstances in life right now, I pray that in this Christmas season they would know Emmanuel, God with them. I pray they would experience the Prince of Peace. God, I pray we would just know that presence every day, every moment in our lives. That we would be a people that just are able to walk boldly and confidently, no matter what we're going through, because of who you are, because of what you've done, because you've come, and you're coming.